I think that's what it takes of finding something in the profession that you actually enjoy doing. Law's so big. I'll never discourage anyone from doing it, but there's always a niche there that you can find. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPause Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, and leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. FurPaws Consulting has deep expertise in helping veterinary practices reach their full potential for all types of practices, whether specialty, emergency, or general practice, by working alongside the practice owner and manager. Are you a practice owner or practice manager with a challenge and not enough bandwidth to tackle it? Reach out to me, Andrea Crabtree, owner of FurPaws Consulting, with the question that keeps you up at night. I'm able to provide expertise and insight to navigate those tricky obstacles. Find my info in the show notes. Email me at andrea at furpaws.us or check out my website at www.furpawsconsulting.com. Welcome back, Positive Leadership listeners. Today, we have an amazing guest and a good friend of mine, Randy Trammell, an attorney at law with Mayhem Law. Randy, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show and hang out with me and David today. We're excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Without having to read uh, stuffy bios, we try to stay away from that on the podcast. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey to what got you where you are today. Grew up in a small town in Southern Ohio, just kind of a blue collar town, went to a tiny little high school, Went, ended up doing uh, undergrad at University of Cincinnati, got a degree in anthropology. And when I graduated college, none of the big anthropology firms were hiring, so kind of decided to go to law school. Went to law school at Northern Kentucky University at night. It was one of the few programs I had in the country that I could go at night and work full time. Ended up after law school, I did commercial litigation for about 15 years, suing on you know commercial contracts, and ended up joining Tony here at Mayhan Law about five, six years ago, maybe. And that's kind of how we got into the veterinary industry. Now we're really focusing on doing all vets and helping vets in all different transactions of transitioning work here and there, buying and selling, and then we're in-house counsel for a bunch of different hospitals. So that's the short story. I didn't realize that you had only been with Tony for five or six years. I felt like you guys, like your chemistry together with him, I feel like you've been partners forever. We have been. So at the original law firm, 
that I was working at that I worked at for about a decade. I hired Tony in under me as an associate attorney. I was head of litigation and Tony came in and worked under me at our prior law firm. So we worked together there for probably six or seven years that before makes more sense. he left and started Mayhem Law. And then after three or four years convincing, he finally got me on board to come over and join him. So yeah, we've known each other now for way over a decade. Okay, so I have to make this plug right now, uh, Randy, because I have, I've had partners conference. You and Tony and I have had a few too many together at the bar several times. And I tell you what, I love hanging out with you guys. But Tony told me about his practice. His wife is a veterinarian. And when you guys built your practice, you built it on the second floor of the veterinary hospital. Tell me about that. So, I mean, it's kind of odd. It's, it's her being a vet is how we got into the business. Again, Tony and I were doing commercial litigation. We were always handling contracts and doing litigation. Tony's always had a big just a big love of entrepreneurship and small businesses. So when he started his firm, his original focus was, I want to be a small business attorney to help people, you know, small businesses, help do startups and do this. So that was the original intent of the firm. But when he needed a place to start his firm, they had done a startup about 10 years ago, a veterinary startup, and there was space on the second floor. So in the original building we were, his law office just happened to be on the second floor when I moved in over there. So we had an animal hospital on the first floor. He's co-owner of the animal hospital. We're representing small businesses. And we got into the industry through his reps. The reps of the animal hospital came and would always ask us as attorneys, what do you guys do? It's like, oh, you know, we represent businesses and do employee contracts and handbooks. And they asked us if they would... uh, if we were willing to come give a presentation to a group of attorney or a group of veterinarians, like 25 vets. And I think this was BI back at the time were just, can you come give this 30 minute talk about employee handbooks and what should be in them? So we started giving these talks, did one about employee handbooks, did one about employment contracts. And before you know it, half of our clients are vets and then 60% are vets, 80%. And we just kind of leaned into it. And it just fits perfectly because having an animal hospital downstairs, it really helps me understand the industry. When I first got into it, I had Tony just walk me downstairs with his wife, the doctor. And I'm like, all right, what does this machine do? What does this machine do? How, explain how this one works. So it's really neat. And we just moved this year. We just moved into a new 8,000 square foot building. So this is the one that we kind of custom built. So it's about 4,500 feet downstairs. It's this beautiful animal hospital. And then Tony and I are up here on the second floor. So we still have an animal hospital downstairs. I love it. I freaking love it. I love how we have these random journeys through life that put us in the veterinary space. So thank you for sharing that. It always helped for Puppy Mondays. If you're ever having a bad day. Yeah, right. It always went down on Mondays because she would always do spay and neuters for the local animal clinic on Mondays. So I knew every Monday there was always cages full of puppies. And sometimes if you're having a bad day, it's really nice. I just, I'd look at Tony and I go, I'm going downstairs. I just need five minutes with a puppy. Time for a puppy <laughs> break. Right. Yeah. Randy, what's on your nightstand or on your desk right now? Your favorite book, a podcast, uh, maybe something, a CE or a class maybe that you've taken in the past, something that had a lasting effect on you? Gosh, I mean, I think the books and things and a lot of the, I like history. 
I mean, history and kind of social sciences. I think this goes back to my anthropology degree. Like I've recently read the book Sapiens. I just think that's an absolutely wonderful book. And it helps so much of understanding how people interact and deal with each other. I think, I think having that degree really helps me understand different cultures and just like I said, how different people interact and how to communicate better with people. So I'm always listening to, you know, a lot of reading books like that. A Short History Of is a podcast that I've gotten into recently. They pick it as some historical topic and give about an hour presentation on it and it just kind of wraps it up in it. I don't know. I really like learning things like that. I mean, that's great. It's so great to connect with you, Randy, and so excited to kind of move through the rest of this. I'm always curious as to why people pick certain professions. And I'll say that it seems these days, from what I see or hear, it seems hit or miss as to whether attorneys are in love with their profession of law, it might be in what type of law you practice. But so many attorneys, especially I think a lot of times in the people law vein, just say, I love getting up every day. I love going to work. I love what I do. So why law? I mean, you kind of, you grew up on a farm and how did you end up, you said you went and got an anthropology degree, but, but what keeps you in law and why did you decide to that for that to be your profession? I mean, it's somewhat of a funny answer, but it's somewhat true. I always tell people that it's, you know, Waylon Jennings, don't let your mamas grow up to be cowboys. My dad was pretty much a cowboy. <laughs> I, I had horses. And my mom used to play that song for me all the time. And it was, you know, you don't grow up to be cowboys. You make them be doctors and lawyers and such. So when I went into my undergraduate degree, I was a pre-med major and got to about organic chemistry. And I didn't like that at all. So I switched to anthropology. And then I immediately was just like, well, I'm just going to law school. I mean, I came from such a small little town. I graduated with 90 people at the top of my class. My dad's one of 12 children. My mom was one of eight. None of my direct relatives or aunts and uncles had ever went to college. I mean, I just really did not know what was even out there. So those two professions were the professions in my mind. It was doctors and lawyers. So I didn't like the meds track. So I became the lawyer. And I just like the transactional stuff. I did litigation for years, and that I didn't enjoy. I mean, that's TV lawyers. You know, you're in court. I would be in three or four different courthouses a day and doing all that. And, you know, I think I was good at it, but I just didn't enjoy it. I like working with people and doing the transactional stuff. So I think that's what it takes of finding something in the profession that you actually enjoy doing. Law's so big. I'll never discourage anyone from doing it, but there's always a niche there that you can find. Yeah, I feel like veterinary medicine is the same way too. It, it used to be so narrow focused where veterinary medicine was like just a veterinarian, but now we've expanded that so much where, yeah, get into veterinary medicine. If you don't want to go to vet school, like hell to the no when it came to OCHEM for me, right? What else can I do? There's so many different things in veterinary medicine. I do love that about our profession. So Randy, I've worked with you quite a bit with contracts and purchases and buyouts. And I know that process can be overwhelming. For our listeners that are potentially looking at going through a buyout, whether it be the practice manager or the practice owner who knows that that's going to be something down the line, can you talk to us a little bit about preparing for selling or what managers should be doing or even practice owners? What can we do to prepare for the process and how? tell us a little bit about how that process goes. So, I mean, the process generally, it's usually about a three to four month process. This is from the actual, you start negotiating a deal 
The first steps are always a letter of intent. This is just the skeletal outline of a transaction. Whether it's an associate buy-in, whether you're selling a practice or where you're buying a practice. I've represented parties on all sides of these. So you get the letter of intent. And this is just kind of a skeletal outline of what the deal is going to be. Then we start drafting the documents, the actual purchase documents. And I think it's just really having people understand that it's not just a simple couple page document. There's lots of ancillaries to it. There's lots of due diligence, which is the gathering of the documents and just looking through financials, making sure these are the financials are correct. Make sure you have copies of all your organizational documents. Like if you're an LLC or a corporation, do you have bylaws? Is there a shareholder agreement? What does it say? Have copies of all your actual contracts. Your The big ones are always your blood analyzers, your chem machines, your chem labs, IDEX, HESCA, Antex. What's the term on these agreements? So this is a lot of what we do is kind of gathering those due diligence documents while incorporating them into the transactional documents and negotiating those terms. But I think the biggest preparedness is just having access to those documents and having a practice manager that knows where they are and knows where, you know, so many of these things I ask owners that don't have a practice manager and they have no idea where to obtain all these documents and things for. It's just, it's a real document heavy, any sort of transaction like that. So nothing that's uh, signed on a cocktail napkin then, huh? Uh, right, right. <laughs> or that's probably where you end up, uh, yeah, sitting yeah. on both sides <laughs> figuring that out, right. So I want to just ask a quick question, Randy, about contracts in general. You know, like what, I mean, separate from like purchase agreements. So managers, often, I mean, I guess anytime you're signing a piece of paper, or maybe it's not even a piece of paper with another person or an entity to like do something for you. It's kind of like a contract. So I think Mm -hmm. of managers that sign anything from a yearly service agreement for exterminator all the way to, you know, engaging with a lawyer for legal services. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, managers are not lawyers. They're also not often owners. So they're not business folks in the sense of like, you know, having having owned or signed some pretty intense documents that an owner might sign, what are things that a manager should look for in an agreement or contract, things that they should never sign or things that they should watch out for and anything from a, a plumber all the way up to, you know, signing an agreement with IDEX? Right. So I review these documents every day. Of the hospitals that we're in-house counsel for, I tell them, send me every document contract before you sign it. And I've got a simple checklist that I'm looking at. I mean, the first thing that I'm always looking at is term. Is there a term? Is this a required one-year contract? Is this a month-to-month contract? Is it a year? You know, if you're looking at the IDEX and things, I mean, are these 60 months? Am I signing up for something that I'm stuck with for five years? Always know the term and always know, look at what the actual cost is. So many times there'll be, you know, there's a monthly fee, but is there also some other installation charge up front? making sure that you just realize what those true amounts are, that I'm always looking at termination. How can I get out of this contract in the event something's going bad? Those are always the three first things that I look at is how much is it going to cost upfront, ongoing, how long is it, and how can I get out of it? You know, if the client needs to get out of it. And the other one, I I just had one recently this week. It was with a security alarm system that another company came in And we're still trying to figure it out. It looks like there's two contracts for the same thing, that maybe there was, you know, they had already purchased some equipment, but now this other company was going to come lease back equipment. It's just making sure everything matches. If you're dealing with 
Smith's Plumbing Inc. When the contract comes over, make sure it says Smith's Plumbing Inc. and not somebody else, you know. Don't be afraid to ask questions to the vendor. Somebody that submits a contract to you, it's not really a take it or leave it. You know, if you don't understand something, feel free to ask the vendor or salesperson to explain it to you. What does this mean? How do I get out of it? How long is this? You know, part of their job there is also explaining that to you. So I think it's really just reading over it. My wife's always, anytime someone puts something in front of me to sign, she's always like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm reading it. (laughs) (laughs) I read a car and I glanced through it at first. I don't just randomly sign things. I think that's the big thing that a lot of people do is they just sign things. So just read it, at least have an understanding of what it is. And don't be afraid to ask questions. That's great. I appreciate that. Are there any, I know there's like sometimes kind of boilerplate, you know, call it legalese stuff that gets put in contracts. Is there anything that like a section of a contract that comes to your mind of like, don't ever sign that or be really skeptical of this kind of a clause is in in an agreement somewhere? Yeah, the personal guarantees. I hate personal guarantees. Generally, unless it's a new practice that doesn't have established credit, you know, with some trailing 12 months, that's about the only time I would recommend signing a, or signing a personal guarantee. Sometimes on leases, real estate leases, they require those. But even if a practice has been open and operational and successful, try to really avoid personal guarantees. The whole point of creating, you know, these companies, limited liability companies and things is to limit that person or you limit that liability that an owner is facing. So the minute you sign a personal guarantee, it wipes all of that out. And then the other one is just understanding that term and that sometimes these agreements last for six years and that if you want to cancel two years later or sell your business, you've got to buy these out. I've had IDEX buyouts in excess of $70,000, $80,000 because somebody had just signed it. There's Yikes. four years left and they want to buy them out. If the buyer's not going to assume that, it can be quite pricey. And I've had that kill a deal before. So, Yeah. Randy, it's exciting for me to hear that more and more practice managers have opportunities to be owners, whether that's buying it at their current practice or a startup or however that may look for them. As managers, should we be looking for those types of opportunities? And if so, what should we look out for as a non-veterinary buying into or doing a startup of some type? The biggest issue there is always the corporate practice of veterinary medicine. Every state has a different regulation on who can own an animal hospital. We have, I kind of have broken them up into three groups. There's open states, closed states, and hybrids. Closed states absolutely prohibit non-DVM ownership. If you're not a DVM, you cannot have any ownership in a hospital that actually performs medicine. Now, there are ways around that through setting up what are called management service organizations, where you have this two-tier system of ownerships on top that then have a professional company of wholly owned veterinarians performing the medical services. That's how all the corporates do it. But that gets extremely pricey and complicated. I mean, it's probably one of the most complicated, expensive items that we do here at my firm is setting up an MSO. So any of those closed states, it's really a barrier for non-DVM ownership. Open states, on the other hand, are much better. I mean, Florida and California, I think it may be the only thing these two states agree on in their laws, (laughs) and they allow non-DVM ownership. They don't care. The main thing is you have to have a veterinarian. 
most any of the states that are even open, you still have to have what we call VIC, a veterinarian in charge. As a non-DVM, you can't be in control of any aspect of the medical side of the business. So you just have to have that veterinarian who either is an employee or a partner or somebody who's going to take on that role of being in charge of the veterinary side of the business. Then the third aspect is the hybrid states. Ohio and Kentucky are kind of set as those that require at least 50% of the owners have to be veterinarians. The other thing that I would warn non-DVMs about, it's much easier, I think, to do sort of buy-ins slowly coming on board to a business than doing a startup or whole or trying to do a wholly owned non-DVM, just purchasing a practice because the banks are extremely leery about giving loans to non-DVMs for to either do a startup or to buy a practice. I've not had real a lot of success getting people financed through conventional veterinary funding with non-DVMs. When you say that there's three buckets, the mm-hmm. open, the close, and the hybrid, and you say it's not allowed, is that not allowed by the government, by the veterinary medical board, by like the banks? Like who is the governing body that says we can or can't own? So the states that actually are closed, that are definitely closed, it is through the Veterinary Practice Act, which is a statute of the state. So that it has gone through the state lawmakers and they have determined who can own it. And they'll straight up say that only individual veterinarians or wholly owned companies by veterinarians can practice medicine. Now, there's a lot of states out there where that is a gray area. That is a great question. The question is they've never addressed it in their statutes, and the veterinary board has not addressed it. There's a wonderful example of Vermont. There is a certified question to the Vermont veterinary board of can a non-DVM own a practice in Vermont? And their official response is, we don't know. We don't see see anything that doesn't allow it, but we don't see anything that does allow it. We would recommend veterinarians owning them, but we don't know. Interesting. So I guess in any situation that a non-veterinarian could own a practice, and let me frame own by meaning any percent at this point, like 1% to 51%, would you recommend in those situations that a practice manager who sees themselves being with this practice for as long as they can try to get some sort of ownership stake, like buying in or some sort of a profit share or or maybe not profit share, but actually like having some sort of shares? Like, do you think that that risk reward is there for a practice manager, meaning like, do they get a really big payoff? They also, of course, have some risk, but like, would you recommend it? And would you like to see more veterinary practices have a, maybe it's not a majority, but a small uh, share of that go to the practice manager? I think that's definitely how it's going. We're seeing that more and more, even with the new associate vets, they're all wanting some sort of buy-in opportunity and those practices. I mean, so many practice managers are just invaluable. I don't necessarily know if they have to truly own a part of it if they're getting compensated fairly. You know, I mean, if there is, you mentioned profit sharing, if you can always compensate people through profit sharing. It could still be a wholly owned entity by one person, but can share revenue through payroll and things through that other associate or practice manager. So in the States, I think in the stakes that allow it, there's no reason not to. You know, I think it's a great way to reward people and have them buy in and help that transition. I mean, that was always 
kind of the market before this big corporate boom when everyone was buying, the idea that's how practices did transition. It was employees who would slowly buy in or buy the whole thing, either the practice manager or a younger associate would buy in. And that was kind of the retirement plan. Yeah. And I think it's great that we're seeing, like I said, more and more practice managers having these opportunities because, you know, they do have a lot of skin in the game, right? They have a lot of mentality of being and acting and behaving as the owners. And there's sometimes I have to tell practice managers, like you can't care more than the practice owner does, right? And so we have, some of these managers have that innate, just, I don't wanna say moral compass or ethical value, whatever it is that they make these decisions as owners and they treat the practice as their own. And they don't have that ownership, right? And Mm -hmm. that's where the ones I'm like, man, you gotta buy in, you gotta buy in. I'm not gonna encourage my girlfriends all the time, buy in. Everything (laughs) you do, you're acting and behaving like a practice owner. Right, I mean, and if you're gonna carry that, I mean, yeah, I know those people that, do care more than the owner. So, I mean, they should have some. It just gets, the only thing I think to worry about, it's it's always the single owner. When you've had a business for a long time and you're the single owner, you kind of get to do what you want. Right. Not obviously, but it's, you know, when you're running books, you don't, you're not really accounting for anybody. Mm-hmm. Anytime right. two people go into business together, it is a hard transition if they didn't start that business together. From transitioning to a single owner to having a partner where all of a sudden you're not just paying every random bill and cell phone bill out of you know the operating account because right. no one's looking over your shoulder. That's where it really changes. So when you do have these minority interests, or even if it's a 50-50, it's so important to have a very solid operating agreement or partnership agreement that just clearly defines what everyone's role is and how the business is going to operate. It just, it turns it into a real business. I mean, you can be an LLC and have a single owner, but it's a sole proprietorship. You know, yeah, you're incorporated, but you're not really actually running it like a true business until you have that partner and have to account for everything. Yeah. Right. Like you end up with more of the board of directors, CEO type of situation versus just the guy or gal doing whatever they want to do. That makes sense. Yeah. So, Randy, you handle a lot of different aspects of veterinary law, and I'm certain that as a veterinary expertise in that in that vein, that you've probably done a little bit of everything since veterinary practices dabble in a lot of different kind of cross-functional business areas. So what are three maybe common mistakes in any kind of legal bucket, regulatory, HR, purchasing, whatever, you know, that veterinary practices make that either get them in or could get them in hot water? Let's Let's try to fix that for some of these folks. I would say the number one call that we get from our retainer clients where we're in-house counsel for, the number one call that I get week in, week out, it's HR. It's almost always HR related. It's very, very, very little amount of times is it something to do with the practice of medicine. That's no surprise there, though. I know, I know. Duh, job security. Andrew's like, I'm here for it. Yeah, it's always HR. They're improperly firing people, which you can fire people. You can do this, but there's a way, but somehow they always seem to find the wrong way to do it. Yeah, they fuck it up on a regular basis. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And you I have to that. come in and clean up the say, mess. That's, My that's God. You, that's why you yeah. have this, this, Andrea. Like, you know. Right. <laughs> it is. That's, it's just employment contracts. They do wrong things in them all the time. I Having just 
the number one thing that I would recommend for anyone is having practice manager, either internal or external, you know, whether that's in-house. And get them some freaking education and training because they fuck it up just as bad half the time. I'm sorry. I get a little spicy. No, I mean, but it's it's the truth. I tell doctors all the time. I'm dealing with these doctor owners in these contracts and they're always apologizing. Oh, you know, I don't know anything about this. I'm sorry. You know, I don't, it's like, you're right. You are a business right. owner. Exactly. You yeah. go to You're right. To be a business owner. Right. Right. So right. hire somebody to do yep. it. Exactly. Yeah. Outsource sure. it to them. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Resource. I'm like, I can try to spay a dog. I can make the first cut, but I'm kind of lost from there. I, right. you know, I, can exactly. wait it. I don't think yeah. it would turn out well. But why do you think you can write an employment contract? Why do you think you can, yeah. you know, properly write an operating agreement? Right. Do and, accounting, you know. Yeah. Know. Hire accounting. people correctly, right? All the things. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So many mistakes I see. I'm just <laughs> not, not knowing what you don't know. Yeah. Do you think it's getting better over time. time? Do you see less mistakes since you started practicing or is it just the same or more? No, I think it actually is getting better because I think more and more people are appreciating and relying on their team. I mean, I think all of these conferences and things we go to, how many times have we seen that? How to use your team, how to better evaluate and elevate your team, make more money by being more efficient. Use the team. I mean, have that practice manager or just somebody other than the owner that's in charge of every surgery and the bookkeeping and everything else. So I, I think I, I am seeing a little bit better. I see lots of practices now have that's good news. That's good somebody to hear. away from the medical side to help with the business some. Randy, what are a couple things that we get right on a regular basis? What are things that either practice managers or veterinary practices do on a regular basis that prevents us from calling you that we should continue to keep doing? Uh, well, that's a hard one because me answering in the negative, I don't know what you're not calling me about. I mean, that's a lawyer answer. That's a lawyer answer. Right? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure that I have some clients that are of yours, Andrea, and I hardly ever get HR calls from them because <laughs> you're right. handling yeah. you them yeah. so well. Yeah. I'm assuming they're doing, you know, I mean, so I think that. So get some HR help then, right? Yeah. It, it, it is, it's <laughs> yeah. HR. I mean, you said it. Get some education. At least your staff. I mean, you have somebody, an office manager. I mean, whether that's even a head tech that is doing it on the side, that right. if you're a small practice, you've only got four people, send them the education, you yeah. know, take some SHRM classes. Maybe, yeah. I mean, you want to get somebody right. certified, let them do that. So they have a general idea because employment law is the number one bear trap that I think that owners and you know people could step into these business yeah. owners. I mean, it's such a, I mean, For yeah, sure. it's, it's such a huge yeah. business risk too. I mean, the DEA is bad, OSHA is bad, but most people I think give their books to an accountant. So at least the CPA is hopefully handling their IRS right. stuff. But then HR is tens of thousands into the hundreds, into the millions of dollars of possible fines. And I mean, it's, yeah, it's a huge risk. And it's, as you said, it's as easy as saying, you know, you're out of here, here's your last check and you fire them inappropriately and really bad hot water. So yeah, yeah. we say people are icky sticky and smell like parvo. Like just don't, <laughs> just don't yeah, just stay don't do away it. from it. Right. Yeah, just don't do oh, it. Oh my God. So Randy, we've chatted a lot about a lot of different areas. You know, I guess talk to us a little bit about your 
practice. I mean, there are some attorneys, and I don't know if you do this specifically, but they just kind of, as you said, are kind of do a retainer, will kind of do general law for a veterinary office in, in a lot of different areas. Do you do that? And if so, like, how would we set up, how would a practice set up a relationship with a a lawyer for a retainer and just, you know, can they shoot you emails? Like, what, do you have regular consults? Like, how does that relationship look like? I.e., we're basically trying to promote practices out there, get an attorney. Sure. <laughs> right. So our practice is really broke up into three main. The main thing that we do are actual, the actual mergers and acquisitions, transactions, both helping buyers and sellers through that buying and selling process from helping a buyer set up that initial company all the way through closing, hopefully staying on as that in-house counsel, sellers working them through all that. Probably 20% of our business is doing startups, which is real similar to a buying deal. You're working with that initial buyer with a bank of finding a location, helping them build that out, creating their companies. And then the remainder of our time are these in-house counsels that we have. So we're, I call myself the in-house outside counsel. So, so many small businesses, a big business has a floor of attorneys. And anytime they have a question, they have a contract, they walk over, they stick their head in Jim's office. Hey, Jim, what do you think about this? Where I send this email? And you get a quick response. Small businesses should have that opportunity too. So that's what Tony and I came up with, this retainer plan that we have where we're a little different than other law firms. We do very few things on an hourly basis. I mean, if it's an associate buy-in, some sort of contract review, we can do that on an hourly basis. But most transactions, we charge a flat fee. And for our in-house counsel service, we charge a flat monthly fee based on kind of the size of your hospital. And we're essentially here. We need it. It means that when you call, we're going to answer the phone. Tony and I answer the phone directly a lot. People call at night, they have issues, you get emails, but it takes away that fear that people have of, well, I'm going to talk to an attorney and he's billing at 0.5, you know, increments of, you know, a 10 minute phone call is going to cost me $74.50. You know, this is just the practices that we work with on this retainer plan when they have the practice manager. I've got practices that call me every week that just, hey, I'm signing this, doing this. Hey, here's a quick email. Does this sound okay? And they can send it to me. I'll edit it. Sounds good. Little quick, you know, maybe a three-minute transaction for that. But you're never going to call a normal attorney to do that. So it's really giving that peace of mind, having a second set of eyes of looking at these kind of contracts and just helping them work through. So that's the biggest thing that we do is working with those and just being there for them and listening. And, hey, I've got this bad employee. They're doing this. I'm writing them up thinking about maybe terminating them, what are the steps? Okay, well, let's get a plan in place. You know, a lot of it is, you know, I'm sure it's similar stuff to what you do, Andrew, but it's having that, them having kind of a lifeline to reach out to, I think it makes them feel better. It helps them sleep at night. That's a big part of what we do here. Yeah, big comfort zone, that safety net. So what happens if we're at a veterinary practice? And as a manager, I know that there is, something we're doing that's going to get us into a pile of shit. I mean, it's bad juju. What happens when I know this, but my practice owner won't change it? What do I do? That's a hard one because you can only lead a horse to water, right? I mean, at some point, Yep. I mean, it's at some point, if people do not take my advice, I have that too. I have 
you know, I've had clients that I've told them to do this. This is wrong. You should not be doing it this way. And I've severed the relationship. I mean, just because you don't kind of want that stink on you, it's going to hit the fan one day. And as a consultant to them, the best thing you can do is always CYA. I mean, it's making sure you can note that you inform them of that because I think that's where we could get in trouble, not in trouble, but if we ever have hassles with that, it's, they are going to get called out for that at some point, something's going to happen and their immediate response is, why didn't you tell me that? Yeah. Yeah. So I do tell the practice managers, like, just make sure you send their practice owner email that says like, Hey, we discussed this today. This is how we're going to move forward. This is what Mm -hmm. we agreed on. And I just want to let you know that these are your potential risks. Say CYA, cover your butt to say, right? That this is what I told you was going to happen. And yes, you decided to, you know, bull in a China shop, go over the top of it and see what happens. But here's your risk, right? Like, here's what's going to happen. Best practices are there for a reason. It is the best practice. It's not the easiest or cheapest or quickest. Right. It's the best. So, yeah. Yeah. It's always explaining and understanding risk. If you could give one piece of advice to our listeners today, what would it be and why that? Build a team. I mean, that is the number one thing that I give all practice owners, especially new owners. There's so many people in this veterinary space that I don't even know if all veterinarians or people in the industry know. The number of people we've met in vet partners, Andrea, that are, I'm I know, shocked. Right, yes, Every, yeah. I never thought, I mean, I, here I'm at a weird little double niche. I'm a M&A business attorney for veterinarians. I tell people that at a cocktail party and they're like, what? Say what? Like, yeah, yeah, right. Like, you do what? Like there's enough business for that. It's like, you have no idea. You have no clue. Yeah, right. This industry is. I'm like, yeah, if you want to design a website, I've got a guy that only designs veterinary websites. I have an architect that only designs veterinary hospitals. You need IT. You need data consulting. You need an accountant. Find one that is veterinary specific. There's so many of them out there, but building that good team, have that consultant, that manager, an attorney, a, a you know a CPA. If you have all these people that are in the industry and you build that team around you and actually use them and listen to their advice, your life will be so much easier. Yeah, right. It takes a village. And if those village people that are in your village, right, those that your tribe, your your team, if they're all subject matter experts, right, and you're leaning on them, how much more successful are you as a business, right? Sometimes it'll help you just get out of your own way. So many people don't know what they don't know. And right. I mean, the more people that you can go and bounce some ideas off of, it's just going to be more beneficial. So tell me about a time where you had your eyes pop out like a pug and your chin hit the ground and your palm went to your forehead and you said, no freaking way. I cannot make this shit up. This just happened. Well, I repoed a cat once, Andrew. You want to hear about that? <laughs> yes. I would love to. You repoed a cat. No way. I repossessed a cat through the Ohio legal system. Yes. So one of our retainer clients. So what had happened? I mean, it, it could happen. It just went sideways so quickly. So what had happened is they had had a black cat come in for a drop off that morning. Normal patient, private patient's pet, dropped it off in the morning, just kind of getting its annual done. And the cl- a clinic 
local animal society also came by and dropped off a black cat. <coughs> similar age, similar appearance. Later in the day, around noon... I can see what's happening already unraveling. Cage charts? Later in the day, about noon, the foster that works with the Humane Society group came to pick up the cat. Their cat. Tech went in the back, got in the wrong cage, gave her a black cat. About an hour later, private client came here to pick up my cat. They go in the back, give him the remaining black cat. He looks at the cat. I saw my cat. Oh, boy. You mean that's not my cat? Of course it's your cat. This isn't my cat. I'm like, oh, no. I bet we've switched the cats. So shouldn't be that hard. Call up the animal shelter and goes, hey, we accidentally gave your foster the wrong cat. Can you please give us their contact information? We'll send a tech out to switch the cats. We're so sorry. Call up the foster. I'm sorry we gave you the wrong cat. You need to bring that cat back or we'll come out and get it. No, I love this cat. I have bonded with this cat and this cat is now my cat. No way. Excuse me? Because you, you've stolen that cat. No, me and this cat have a bond. In the half hour. In the half hour, yeah. So they call the local police. The police come out, look at it and go, well, this is a civil matter. We're not handling it. Obviously, it's not oh, theft. Right. We gave her the cat. It's not a complete theft. So that's when we get involved. So we deal with it. And the first thing, though, is you're looking at it not only on you, you want to reunite the owners with their cat, obviously, and with their own pet. But this could have also been a complete PR nightmare for the hospital. The hospital contacted us, was in constant contact wow. with the owner and said, hey, we're going to make this right. We have an attorney on call. We're going to do this. It's going to come out of our pocket. You know, we'll fix this. So everyone's on board. So Tony and I then decide, how do you get a cat back? And in the law, you can actually essentially repossess or go get an order of execution. If somebody is holding your property and won't let it go, you have to go get an order of execution. So we file an order of execution for one black cat. And we take it and we file it. And it has to go in front of a judge. And the judge has to approve it and sign off on it, which they do all the time. These are very standard orders. Right. The judge calls us back and wants to know, are you boys trying to repo a cat? Am I reading this correctly? Yes, Your Honor. Explain the whole situation. He goes, well, in order to do that, we have to post a bond. And it's usually the value of the whatever you're trying to get back. He goes, what's a cat worth? We're like, 100 bucks? (laughs) <laughs> and he goes, up. Oh, sounds good to me. So we get an order of repossession. So now we have an order to possess this cat. Now we have to execute on it. So we actually have to go to the sheriff's department and schedule a date. And the sheriff's department rolls up heavy tactical gear. They're like, meet us at this house at 8 a.m. and we'll get this cat. They oh, my gosh. Oh, what they are they thinking? I mean, they have to be like, we're going for a cat. It's a cat. They roll up in a fully armored vehicle, full tactical gear. I mean, they walk up. No way. Beating on the door like they're the police, you know, just boom, boom, boom. Open up. Open up. We have an execution. We have a warrant to cover this cat. No one's coming to the door. The cops are walking around. They're looking in the windows. They're like, someone's clearly inside. They won't come to the door. Boom, 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 boom. We're like, I don't know. Tony and I are just standing back. We don't know what to do there. And they're like, well... They're not coming. Uh, you want to meet us again tomorrow morning? We'll do it all over again until they open the door. 
So we drive back to the office, about halfway back to the office, we get a call from the sheriff. They had contacted them. If this is about the cat, they will gladly, if we drive back there, they will gladly give us the cat back. If, wow. Uh, we'll dismiss the order. So. Yes, that scared go, him a little bit. We go back, they give the sheriff the cat. Sheriff comes over to this. Is this the cat? Well, again, law office above an animal hospital. We've got chip readers downstairs. So Tony and uh, grab the chip reader. Boop, boop. That's the cat. And he's like, okay, here's your cat. And we're able, I mean, it took about four days to get all of that through, but we're able to reunite the owner back with its cat. It's the weirdest story in the world. I mean, it's, I still go to the courthouse and they're like, reponing cats lately. Yeah, I'm like, right. no, just the one. Oh my gosh. How crazy. Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. So at this point in the show, we're going to go into the rapid fire. Tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. Losing my first jury trial unanimously. Tell me about your proudest moment. Going to be a sappy dad. Just seeing my kids. Why veterinary medicine? What do you enjoy about working with folks in our profession? Again, stumbled into it just kind of by happen chance. But honestly, it's the people. Self-care, how do you practice it? How do you decompress? I'm in Kentucky, so bourbon. Lots and lots of bourbon. <laughs> how do you balance work and life? And do you experience any work guilt in that balance? I mean, I think you always experience when you're missing something, but... I mean, I go to every game, I spend time with the family, and you have to make the balance. I mean, no one really hands it to you. You've got to do it yourself. What keeps you up at night? Gosh, the shape of the new world, of what's coming. I mean, back to my kids, of what are they going to do? You know, I mean, with the cost of everything going up, I mean, I think it's just your typical anxiety of trying to keep pedaling forward and hoping things still work out. And what gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? Helping people. I get the biggest kick out of this. What color best describes you and why? I want to say red, but it's not. It's blue. Pretty calm, easygoing guy, I would say. I go with everything. I can fit into any group. And if you could be any animal, what would it be and why? Dolphin. That's great, Randy. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Thank you, Randy. This is fantastic. (laughs) Can you share either your social media handles or how you would want any of our listeners to get a hold of you and find out more about Mayhan Law and who you are? Mayhanlaw.com, M-A-H-A-N-L-A-W.com. That's the best spot. Uh, that's got a link on there to contact us. Goes to Tony and I directly. Him and I personally respond to every email that comes through there. We'll set up a consultation. We always have free consultations. If you've got an issue or need further questions about something, feel free to reach out to us. and. Uh, One of us will give you a call and see if we can assist you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Randy. Have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. Thanks, Andrew. 
For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.